0: Good morning, church. In that video, you saw the, the, the lake that they were, students were splashing in. That froze over the next morning. Like, that's how cold that was. <laughs> this video compilation is both from our high school and our junior high camps from this summer. And reflecting over this video reminds me how much I love to do what I get to do. I love to do what I get to do. I love being the youth pastor here. And just a couple weeks ago, I just celebrated my first year on staff here, and I love it even more. I love that I get to help students to fall in love with the gospel. I love that I get to point people back to Jesus. I love that you are a church that loves our students and supports them encourages them And so listen, our students are digging deep into their faith, and they're really living it boldly in this world that stands radically against them. On Friday night, I had over a dozen students that came and spent four hours as we watched a documentary that really tore down what the fundamentals of the gospel is. Four hours our students wrestled with theology. Now on top of that, we're going to be taking our students to New Life Church in Moline here. They're hosting the Unshakable Faith Conference. And in this conference, it's called Standing Firm in a Deceived Culture. They're gonna be tackling biblical topics of the case for Jesus, the case for the Bible, but they're gonna be tackling topics on abortion, transgenderism, homosexuality, racism, globalism, climate change. And so this free conference uh, will help believers to walk into those perspectives of our culture, and have a biblical worldview. And so everyone is invited, but specifically I want to encourage parents and students to attend. Now with all that said, if you guys will allow me to be vulnerable here for just a moment, my life has been really crazy over the past few months. There's just been so much that's going on in my life. And so Brian, Pastor Brian announced a few weeks ago that I was going to be retiring from the fire department, And so I've been working full-time on the fire department as well as full-time up here on staff for the past year, and so I'm ready for a nap. (laughs) But this coming Friday is my last day on the fire department. I'm officially retiring on August 4th. You see, I'm trying to process the idea of walking away from a career that I've been doing for 23 years. In 2009, when I became a believer, I decided that the fire department was going to be my mission field. And so for the past 14 years, I've been pouring into that, and I just recently had begun to see this harvest. And so it's so exciting for what continues to be a tough place to live for Christ I'm starting to see men that are stepping up, men that are starting to live boldly for, their, for God, men that are starting to step up and be godly dads and step up as husbands. Just the other day, just last week, I had one of my paramedics call me up, and he's super excited on the phone, and he starts telling me about really this devastating medical call that he had just transported to the emergency room, and I'm like, why are you so excited about this? But I let him talk for a moment and all of a sudden he shared that when they got up to the emergency room that the family came up and asked them if they would pray over them I get emotional a couple times last night and I was like I don't know where that came from but but listen so so picture here's my guys they transport this guy to the emergency room in the middle of the emergency room they lay hands on this guy and they pray over this hurting family like, this is something. This, this has never happened in my career before. This is stuff that I've, I've just never seen before. And so all I know is that God is working on those hearts of those big, burly firemen, yeah. and he's starting to soften them. And so I walk away from this mission field, with full confidence that God is closing that door for me, full confidence that God has opened a door here for me. And so I'm, I'm walking away confident, but man, I'm pretty broken. That I pray for God to raise up a new leader in that mission field. So now in addition to all of this that's going on, Jamie, my wife, and I, along with Chastity Holmquist and Mike Kershak, took our high school students out to Colorado for our summer camp. In Colorado, we repelled, or they called it throwing themselves off a cliff and hoping that they would live. <laughs> we, re- we repelled, we whitewater rafted, and then we spent four days backpacking through the collegiate peaks of the Rocky Mountains. Now, here's the cool thing. Most of our students had never even camped before let alone to cram everything they need to survive into a backpack and lug it through the high-altitude, snowy peaks of the Rocky Mountains. One thing I made sure that I pressed into our students is to be willing to do hard things. And that's one reason why I love taking students on on uh, excursions like this is to teach them that once you realize that you physically are capable of more than what you think, once you realize that like I can be pushed to some place where I'm uncomfortable and I can still go further, that that means all of a sudden when God calls us to do really hard things that we're capable of stepping up and saying yes to those things as well. First Timothy 4, 7, and 8 talks about this. It says, while bodily training is of some value, but godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for this life, but also for the life to come. And so while I'm writing this part of this sermon, A.J. Langworthy, our youth assistant, he takes and he randomly sent me a list of the five most recent songs that were played on a secular radio station. Just give me a reason, unholy, the lazy song, anti-hero, and get lucky. But you see, as believers, and what we continue to try to press into our students is that it's not about needing a reason we know the reason the reason is to glorify god that it's not about unholy but we're called to be holy as he is holy it's not the lazy song but god's called us to the great commission it's not anti-hero but we're called to stand up and defend those who cannot defend themselves and it's definitely not about getting lucky but it's about honoring god through our purity And as he sent me this list of these songs in this moment, it served as a stark reminder to me about the world that our students live in. This is the world our students live in, and yet our students were willing to sacrifice a week of their summer just step away from their cell phones. To take to step away from the internet and social media, and in a, in a lot of ways, to step away from their lives as a whole. In the purpose, with the idea to just bask in God's creation, to know Him deeper, and to show Him glory. In the process at camp, we had students. I had students that came up and they're like, hey, man, I am struggling with this. I need some accountability. We had students that came up and they're like, I need someone to intentionally to disciple me because I want to go deeper in my faith. We had students repent of sin. We had students commit to be more fully devoted to God. Now, I do have to say for full disclosure, four days of carrying heavy packs for miles in the back country, not everybody was a fan. Okay, so now on top of retirement, on top of the weight of the junior high and senior high camps, Jamie, my wife, and I also went on the Israel trip to Pastor Ed led. This trip alone was overwhelming. It's tough to process through. I mean, we literally were walking the walls of Jerusalem. We, we stood where the temple was. We touched a mosaic floor in the synagogue of Magdala where Jesus would have walked and preached. We stood where uh, the... Oh, here we go. We stood where the, uh, Jesus cast the demons into the pigs and they ran into the sea. We saw where Jesus called Andrew and Peter and where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, and the list just keeps going. But on top of all of this, in Bethlehem, we found the best knockoff Starbucks I've ever seen. <laughs> if you see right above Jamie's head, it's not Starbucks, it's Squarebucks. And literally a block down the road was stars and bucks. For those of you guys that are coffee drinkers, let me give you some advice. Don't go to Israel. I think the worst cup of coffee I've ever had in my entire life was every cup of coffee I had there. So here I am, I'm just... I'm beat tired I'm overwhelmed, I'm just ready for just to rest for a moment. I'm in the airport waiting for my flight back home from Israel when Pastor Brian sends me a message. And he says, and I quote, I want you to come back with two sermons. <laughs> to which I replied, after a 14-hour flight that crosses eight time zones, I'm hoping to come back and take a nap. To which his immediate reply was, Seriously, one from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament. Well, two terrible cups of airport coffee later, and I start working on this sermon. And so people keep asking me what my favorite part of the Israel trip was. And although as a whole, this trip was amazing, and I highly recommend it if you're capable. The one thing that struck me, the one thing that really hit me was on our final day. We're in our tour bus. We're driving down the highway, and all of a sudden, the tour bus driver pulls over to the side of the highway and says, get out. And we get out, and we start walking down this rocky path, which all of a sudden opens up to this wide expanse of a field. Our guide begins to read from Scripture. He says, now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah. And encamped between Soko and Azekah is Ephes-Demim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other. And so you see Soko is in the bottom right corner. Azekah is in the top left, and it says the Philistines were camped in between those, which we see as Ephes-Demim. That's actually They call it a mountain. I call it a hill after being in Colorado. But they're encamped on this mountain. Above, that's the Valley of Hila. This is the battlefield. And on the other side, we see the Israelite camp. Listen, it's in this moment that all of a sudden I realize, it strikes me, I'm standing on the battlefield where David fought Goliath. The Israel camp The Israel camp was on this mountain here and the Philistine camp was on the mountain where those trees are back there. This is literally the battlefield that we're looking at. In this corner down here where you see people standing, that's actually the dried up riverbed where David would have picked up his five smooth stones that he took into battle. And I just stood in that dried up riverbed. Like, this soil holds so much biblical history. And I just knelt in that soil as Scripture just played in my head. But as they were reading the Scripture of David and Goliath, there were so many things that didn't quite match up with the story that I remember as a kid. The story of this young boy fighting this massive giant. And so today I want to spend our time in 1 Samuel 16 and 17. But before we can talk about this battle, what we need to do first is go back and look at David, who was David. The first time David's introduced in scripture is in Ruth, where, he finds, where we find out he's a direct descendant of both Ruth and Boaz. The next time we see him in scripture is in 1 Samuel 16, where David is in the field as a shepherd, a young boy in the field as a shepherd. And surprisingly, he gets called out of the field and surprisingly anointed as the new king of Israel. You see, what's going on here is God finally chose to replace King Saul, who was the people's choice. King Saul was elected by the people. He was the people's choice. And God finally decides to replace him with God's choice, which is David. In verse 13, it tells us that in that moment, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David. I love that they use that word, that it rushed upon them. It means the spirit pushed forward on David. It came mightily on David. This shows the urgency of the presence of God resting on him. There was purpose to this the next verse in verse 14, we see that in result to King Saul that the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. You see, although Saul stayed physically as the king for a time, in the eyes of God, David was now the rightful king of the nation of Israel. Now, once that spirit, once once God's spirit uh, was on David, I'm sorry, once the spirit of God that was on Saul was removed, Scripture tells us that a harmful spirit began to torment him. Now, traditionally, it was known that if you took and you played music, it would calm these harmful spirits. And so David's servants, Saul's servants... All of a sudden come up to Saul and they're like, "Hey, wait a second. We know a guy who can play the harp really well. That he can come in, he could play this and help to settle these harmful spirits that are on you." And Saul's like, "Okay, who is it?" It's David. It's David. Do you guys see like in all of God's sovereignty, it was David, the guy that just unknowingly to Saul just got anointed to replace him is now being invited into the palace to bring peace to Saul. One commentator discussed God's will in all of this and he says in all God's sovereignty, God allowed an evil spirit to torment Saul for his purpose, for God's purpose of establishing the throne of David. You see, this is just one piece of God's bigger plan of salvation. This is just one piece of how God worked the whole thing out so that you and I can have salvation. Further, God's sovereignty brought David into the court of the king to learn about it, to learn the manners of the court, the business of the government, the general state of the nation, David went from tending sheep in the fields to having an internship of sorts, being able to witness firsthand the rule of Israel. and God's perfect sovereignty, God is putting David in the perfect place to prepare him for his future reign. So David enters into the palace to serve as the court musician. Now the spirit of the Lord works through David. As he plays his harp, it settles this, this tormenting spirit that's on Saul. This was so comforting to Saul that Saul says, says here in verse 21 that Saul loved David greatly and he became his armor bearer. So now David doesn't just a musician, but now he's Saul's armor bearer. But what does that mean? What did an armor bearer do? An armor bearer's role was much more than just dragging the king's armor along down the road. Their role also included protecting the king, protecting other warriors, carrying the king's shield and weapons, relaying messages between the warriors and the king and back, and in the event that the king was injured or killed, it was the armor bearer's role to protect the king's body. One commentator described the attributes of an armor bearer. He says, first and foremost, an armor bearer must be completely devoted to their master. They must be someone who can be trusted with any task, no matter how difficult or dangerous it may be. They must be willing to lay down their life for their master if necessary. They must be trustworthy, loyal, physically fit, and able to keep up with the master in battle. They must be skilled in the use of weapons. Finally, they must have the courage to face any enemy, no matter how formidable they may be. Listen again. God's perfect providence is placing David in the right position now as an armor bearer at the right time. David's placing, uh, God's placing David where he could be not only of use to Israel, but where he could continue to really refine his skills on the battlefield. He can build leadership qualities. He can establish himself as a man after God's own heart. As David was willing to continually do hard things. Now, David did all this with the purpose, not to glorify himself, but for God to be glorified. David calls out years later in Psalm 16, 8 and 9, and he says, I've set the Lord always before me. Because the Lord's at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. David's security is in a God that's worthy of glory. In 1 Samuel 17, one through three now, we heard how specific the battlefield is. We see how specific Samuel describes the battlefield with such detail. Not only is this information amazing that I literally stood on the battlefield because we had that information, but it gives us an idea into how Samuel writes. You see, Samuel writes logically. He writes specifically with great detail. And so we know that as specific as the battlefield was, the description that follows of Goliath has to be accurate also. And so in 17 verses four through seven, It says, and now there came, out of the valley of the camp of the Philistines, a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head. He was armed with a coat of mail, and that coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. He had a bronze armor on his legs, a a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders, and the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. The head of the, of, the, of the spear weighed over 600 shekels of iron. Listen, the Philistines offer up their best. The Philistines offer up Goliath, this literal giant of a man, nine feet, nine inches tall, wearing armor that weighed over 125 pounds, a javelin strapped to his back, and a spear with a tip alone weighed over 15 pounds. And I'm trying... I'm trying to picture what this massive man had to have looked like, and I figure he had to look like Pastor Ed. (laughs) So here comes Goliath, marching into this empty battlefield, just he and his armor bearer alone in this large expanse of a valley. The entire Philistine army is on the ridge behind him. The battlefield becomes quiet. His voice echoes through this empty valley as he shouts to the army of Israel who's standing on the ridge in front of him. Verse eight and and nine, choose for yourself a man and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and I kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. I find this crazy. I find this idea crazy. They're deciding the fate of an entire nation, not based upon a war, not based upon a battle, but based upon a fight between two men. And the standard was, was that whoever lost, their nation would surrender. Now, one commentator describes that the Philistines, the Philistines would have known about the God Yahweh. They would have known the history of how Israel's God was capable of crushing armies the Philistines would have known how Samson ripped the gates out the Philistine city of Gaza. They would have known how Samson killed a thousand Philistine soldiers with a jawbone of a donkey. So it's believed, it's believed that Goliath was testing the waters. You see, he's standing in the Elah Valley, and he's like, "Whose God has control of this valley? Is it the God Yahweh?" Or is it the Philistine god, Dagon? It makes no difference. Goliath had everyone terrified. No one wanted to fight with him, and this routine carried on for 40 days. Both in the morning and in the evening, Goliath would come to the battlefield. He would puff up his chest. He would throw some insults, challenge someone to finally have the courage to come and fight him. And the Israelites would shake in their sandals. Another commentator described King Saul like this. He says, King Saul was clever. He was effective in battle. He waged successful military campaigns against the enemies all around Israel. After Saul had assumed the role of Israel, he fought against the armies, uh, uh, the enemies on every side from Moab, the Ammonites, Edom, King Zobab, the Philistines, Wherever he turned, though, Saul inflicted punishment on him. He fought valiantly and defeated the Amalekites, delivering Israel from the, from the country who had plundered them. And so this made Saul really popular with the people, with the nation of Israel. And yet we find out in verse 11 that all of Israel, specifically including Saul, was greatly afraid. First Samuel 9.2 describes Saul, and it says, From the shoulders up, Saul was taller than any other Israelite. This means Saul was a foot taller than the average Israelite. And so when it comes to physical size, Saul was the closest in height to Goliath. It's believed that Saul was the only Israelite that had comparable quality body armor to that of Goliath's. So when it comes down to it, Saul should have been the champion who represented Israel. It should have been Saul leading his military. Saul leading this country. It should have been Saul standing before Goliath. Saul was this proven military leader that time and time again, he stood in battle and came out victorious. He had the support of the people. There's no reason why Saul should have handled this any different than normal. He was on a winning streak. His confidence should have been at an all-time high. And yet, see, and yet now he's standing there trembling in fear. And so what's different? Saul's last battle was with the Amalekites. And in that battle, Saul chose to take and handle that battle the way he wanted to, not the way God directed him to. And so it's a result of that is why God had his final rejection of Saul as king. It was because of that that God took his presence off of Saul. And now all of a sudden, Saul's standing here, and he no longer has the presence of God upon him, and he was greatly afraid. Here's the thing, though. Saul knew it. Saul knew it. Saul knew the Lord was no longer upon him. He knew he messed up. He knew he was caught up in sin. Saul knew it. But we have to stop for a second. Before we go tearing Saul down and then trying to place David on some pedestal, we also need to remember that years later, David should have been on the front lines on the, of the uh, battle with the Ammonites. But instead, David was back in Jerusalem, caught up in sin with Bathsheba. So let's not be too quick to condemn Saul for not standing and leading his military and place David off, on this uh, pedestal. You know what's different about David though? I love, I love David. You know what's different about him? Psalm 51 shows us his heart. See, when conviction fell on David from the sin with Bathsheba, David's response, he cried out to God. He literally begged God for abundant mercy. He begged God for forgiveness. He admitted his sin was not just against man, but was against a holy God. Here's the part that we have to look at ourselves, though. Which one are we? Right? Are we like Saul, that when all of a sudden we're convicted of sin, that we just ignore it, and we just push it off? Or are we like David, who is broken over his sin, who's quick to cry out to God, quick to run back to him, begging for grace, begging for forgiveness, begging to be in a right relationship with God once again? Psalm 51.11. Psalm fifty one eleven. This is when David gets is convicted of a sin with Bathsheba. Listen, David. This is he cries out to God and he says, "Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your holy spirit from me." Listen, David didn't cry out to God and said, "God, remove me from the consequences of my sin." He doesn't call out to God and say, "God." Remove the temptation of this sin. But instead, David wants to be known as a, as a man that's after God's own heart. And so in this moment, he cries out and he's like, God, do whatever you do. Just don't leave me. Just don't take your presence from me. But doesn't this all just show us how easy it is to fall back into the depths of sin when we take our eyes off of a God who's deserving of glory? So if we're back on the battlefield. David comes onto this battlefield and he's bringing provisions. He's bringing food to his brothers who were part of the Israelite military. As he walks into the camp, Goliath's in the field. David overhears Goliath shouting his insults. And David immediately begs Saul to let him battle against him. King Saul initially pushes back. And for whatever reason, he finally reluctantly agrees to allow David to fight Goliath. Once again, this story doesn't make sense to me. Right, out of all of the military, out of all the assumed highly trained military fighters, they chose David? Listen, on the fire department, I had my own crew of guys and I knew them. I knew that there were some guys that had finesse. And I knew there was other guys that were just bulls. But I knew in what circumstances to call, to call upon different people for different tasks. I would assume that Israel, Israel's commanders should have known the same. They should have been able to come to an agreement on who the rightful person was to send in against Goliath, even if Saul was too fearful to do it himself. And then in comes strutting this young, good-looking guy who served a portion of his life playing a harp. And now he's got his his eye on the biggest guy in the room. This is why I always warn the jocks not to mess with the band kids because you never know what they're capable of. (laughs) You see, this is the way this story usually goes though, right? Young boy, David... Giant Goliath takes him down with a single stone. Part of this is correct. Part of this is biblical, but see, when we read for ourselves, we begin to look back. When Saul first took David out of the fields, when Saul first took him and brought him in to play this harp as a musician, David already had a reputation. Young David already had a reputation. His reputation was not being known solely for being an amazing musician, but he was known for being a man of valor, a man of war, being prudent in speech, a man of good presence. But here's the one I love the most, and the Lord was with him. As I process through retirement from the fire department, I always wonder what my reputation really is. I know what guys say to my face, but what's my re- reputation behind closed doors? I see the reputation David had that the Lord was with him. And man, I can only hope that I lived my faith boldly enough that there may be a few that would say that about me. But listen, David. David, maybe he wasn't military trained, but David was a warrior. This is not some rendition of eight-year-old boy that we see in a children's book. David was a warrior. David had wrestled a bear and on another occasion wrestled a lion with his bare hands and David won. David took his role as a shepherd, seriously protecting his flock. David lived up to the reputation of an armor bearer as he was fully devoted to the master. But here's the thing. Saul was not David's master. God was. God was David's master. God was the one that David was fully devoted, willing to lay his life down for. So when David walks into this Israelite camp to convince Saul to let him stand against Goliath, he was obviously met with resistance, but Saul didn't push back on him based upon his physical size. Later, Saul even offered David his own armor. Answers in Genesis concludes. He says, although Saul acted foolishly on several occasions, Saul wasn't unintelligent. If Saul was documented as one of the tallest men in the land of Israel, why would he offer a young boy his armor knowing it wouldn't fit him? In addition, He would also know that if David was a small boy wearing his armor, it would only reduce his odds of winning the battle. If David was so much smaller than Saul, Saul easily could have had one of his other warriors that was comparable in size give David his armor. And further, David didn't refuse the armor because it didn't fit. David refused the armor because he wasn't accustomed to wearing that particular set. See, in contrast, how the story is usually told in verse 33, it says that Saul said to David, you're not able to go against the Philistines to fight with him for you are but a youth. I love Paul literally a thousand years later, here comes Paul to rebuke him. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.12, he says, let no one despise you because of your youth but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. So here's David setting an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith. Here's David setting an example of a man that is desperately in love with God, a a man that's willing to be bold in his faith, that's so confident, not in himself, but his confidence is in such a big God that he's willing to literally stake his life on it a man that was unwilling to bow to anything that defiles God. David's overwhelming confidence in God becomes infectious. The moment that Saul finally submits to allow David to fight Goliath is when David steps forward and he makes this proclamation in verse 36 and 37. He says, your servant has struck down both lion and bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine, he'll, he shall be like one of them. For he defiled the armies of the living God. And David said, the God who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Listen, did you notice that David didn't walk out there and he puffed his own chest up? David didn't go out there and point at his own strength or his own skill like Goliath did. But instead, David points to God's power. David knows the victory is the Lord's. David had one purpose for placing his life on the line. David had one purpose for his passion. He had one purpose for his boldness. You see, it wasn't for David specifically about defeating Goliath. It wasn't. It wasn't about specifically defeating Goliath. It isn't specifically about winning a battle for David. It isn't specifically about defeating the Philistine oppressors. You see, David said in verse 36, he says, Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For, because, because he defiled the armies of the living God. David's like, how dare he? How dare he? It's because they oppose the army of God and God would defeat him. It's not about David's strength or David's courage or David's skill or his fortitude. It's about God. Listen, it's about God. It's always been about God. It will always be about God and him getting glory. Philippians 2, 9 and 11 Therefore, God is highly exalted and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the the glory of God the Father. Listen, here's the cool thing. Saul even affirms David. Saul affirms David. He's like, the only way you're going to win is if God's with you. Verse 37, Saul tells him, he's like, go and the Lord be with you. I believe though, I believe in this moment that Saul sees something in David that he remembered from himself. Saul sees something in David in this moment that Saul's like, man, I remember having that. But I know that's missing from my life. Now, Saul sees this confidence, this certainty that David has. He recognizes it. Saul remembers it. Saul knows that the Spirit of God is upon David. You see, when we stop trying to make this about this story of a young boy overcoming a giant, but instead we see God fulfilling his unfolding plan of redemption that he's paving a way for a redeemer, for Jesus to be unarguably known through the fulfillment of prophecy is when we see God's sovereign hand working here. God's working a plan for salvation through all these small details over the spans of human history, all for the purpose, all for the glory of God. One pastor comments. He says, when we read scripture, we rightfully try to apply it to our lives. But he says, the problem is, is we always want to be the hero. We always place ourselves undeservedly in the role of the hero. So in this story, we always say, well, I'm David, and my finances are my Goliath. Or my work conditions are my Goliath. Or I'm David, and my sin issue is my Goliath. And this pastor passionately calls out, and he says, you're not David. You're not David, because it's not about you. You're not the hero of this story. God's the hero. It's about God. It's always been about God and Him receiving glory. And so we can look at Scripture and see all through Scripture, time and time again, about it's all about God receiving glory. Isaiah 43 7. God created us for? His glory, Psalm 46.10, be still and know that I am God, for he will be exalted among the nations. He will be exalted in the earth, Exodus 14.18, and God says to the Egyptians, shall know that I am the Lord when... I have gotten glory over Pharaoh. Isaiah forty-eight, eleven. God's glory. He says, I won't share it with another. Matthew five, sixteen says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. Your good works is for the purpose to give glory to your father. John 14, 13, whatever you ask in my name, this I do so that the father may be glorified in the son. And this list literally continues. So listen, I keep saying, I keep saying that God should be glorified through our lives, but what does this really mean? You see, glory is kind of one of those church words that we throw out sometimes, but we may struggle to define it. In student ministry, whenever a student throws out a church word like that, I'm like, all right, define it. What does it mean? Explain it to me. Here's the deal. God's perfect. In and of himself, he's perfect. So we can't make him more glorious. I can't add to his glory. But what we can do is we can point to his glory. And so we can see his glory, we can savor his glory, and we can celebrate his glory. Do you see this? In this story of David and Goliath, it's about God being glorified so we can see a sovereign God working out his perfect plan. We can sit back and savor that God is big enough to have it all in perfect control. And then we can celebrate that through perfect grace and perfect mercy, that God is perfectly loving and a way for sinners to be reconciled back to a perfectly just God. We can see him. We can savor him. We can celebrate him with our born again lives. This is how we glorify God. Listen, on our third day of backpacking in Colorado, it's mid-afternoon, the sun is bright, the trail we're hiking on suddenly takes a sharp right turn, and the landscape just opens up, revealing Mount Hope. Now, obviously, photos don't do justice, but in this moment, I grabbed some of our high school students, and I asked them, I said, hey, do you feel big right now, or do you feel small? And nearly every student shared how small they felt. You see, in a culture that's me-centered, that the driving force behind every desire, every decision is focused on me and how can I look better and how can I get ahead and how can I get more people to like me? How can I sound better? Our students at this moment, they felt small. They didn't feel insignificant. They didn't feel unimportant. But in that moment, they gained a bit more perspective on how big God truly is and that glory is due to him. So listen, when we look at this story, if we want to apply it to our own lives, we more accurately need to place Jesus as David. David and our sin as Goliath. Jesus has defeated and overcome sin. Jesus is the true hero. Jesus is the true victory of this battle. Our sin defeated once for all. The truth is, it's not about me, but it's about a God being glorified. And listen, God being glorified, that it's not about me actually brings freedom and peace. Listen, if I'm the hero of this story, if I'm David and my sin is Goliath, if I'm the victor, this means the only way for me to overcome sin is by me defeating it. Listen, I'm gonna go on a ledge here though and say at one point or another, probably everyone in this room has tried this. We've tried to be good enough for God, or we've tried to be strong enough to stand up against our addictions, or we've tried to have enough willpower to overcome our sin and our selfishness, and this is what I know. Me trying to be the hero of this story is exhausting, and I'm simply incapable of it. See, when we try to take the place as the hero, it makes everything about my good works. It makes everything about my performance. I laughed as I listened to a preacher continue on this section. He says, listen, if you want to place yourself in this story, if you insist on placing yourself in the story of David and Goliath, the most rightful place for you to be is the Israelites that were standing on the edge of the battlefield, shaking with fear. But here's the amazing part, right? Here's the good news of all of this is that we don't have to shake with fear over our sin. Although in Colorado, though my students may have felt small, they knew they had a big God and that God used this whole story of David and Goliath in his sovereignty to continue laying out a path for salvation, salvation so that we, you and I can once again boldly stand before the throne of God and worship the rightful king. You see, it's all about him. You see, God's the one that spoke creation into existence. God's the one that blew the breath of life into man. God is the one that created us with a purpose. He's the one that gave you your last breath. And he gave you that breath also. God's the one that uses all things for his glory. God is the one that knew you before you were born. God's the one that knows every hair on your head. God's the one that's not constrained by space and time. God's the one that was grieved. God's the one that was grieved when man sinned and turned from him. But God's also the one that laid out the plan of salvation. God's the one that sent his son, Jesus, who lived a sinless life and died a sinner's death with a guarantee of eternal life because he rose from the grave three days later, overcoming sin and death. God's the one that calls us to himself. God's the one that gives faith, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. God's the one that sovereigns and holds it all together. The only thing we bring, the only thing we bring to the table is our sin. And yet God's the one that offers forgiveness for that. Having a right view of God, knowing that God is that big, that God is that good, that God is all loving, but he's equally just. He's sovereign, which means he works out all parts, even even the tough parts of our lives. He works it all out. He's going to use it and be glorified. He's the one that's done it all. It's all about him. Listen, in 2009, I sat in this exact room and I wrestled with the idea if I believed what was preaching was being preached from this exact location. I wrestled with the idea if I really believed that there was a God. And I think it's just ingrained in us, right? To want to live life our own way, to want to do it our way. And so we fight For our plans, we fight for our recognition. We fight to live life the way we want to live it. We fight to take, to make it about us. But, but I realized I was really tired of fighting God. Listen God was continuing to draw me to himself God was softening my heart the truth of scripture was captivating my thoughts and I realized I was just tired of fighting a God who was so passionately chasing after me And I remember the night I was I told God I'm like I'm just tired I'm tired of fighting I'm like, God, you can have it all. You can have my life. You can have my career and my marriage and my family, my hopes, my dreams. God, you can have it all. I'm just tired of fighting. God, take it all. And if you can do something with it and be glorified, do it. Listen, as much as this story is about David fighting Goliath, it's more so a story about David not fighting Goliath. God. Do you catch that? It's more so a story about David not fighting God. David trusted God. David had seen how God had been faithful, how God had been good, and had provided time and time again. David stood before Goliath. He had such confidence such confidence that God was who God said he was that no matter the results of the battle David knew God would win. David knew that no matter whether he lived or if he died that God would be glorified and God would win. So man, I just ask you like are you tired? Are you tired? And, and, and maybe you're in the place I was, and you're like, man, I, I just don't even know if what's being preached from this location is actual truth, but God, are you getting tired of fighting God? Or maybe you're still just holding on, grasping to certain parts of your life, and you're like, God, I got this. Uh, you can have it all, but uh, I still want to hold on to my finances. God, I trust you with everything, but oh uh, God, I just, my work, like, are you at the point where you're tired of fighting him yet, though? Because this is Psalm 30, 11 and 12. God takes everything and is glorified through it. He's take, turned my mourning. He's turned it into dancing. He's loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praises and not be silent. Oh Lord, my God, I'll give you thanks forever. Father, we love you, God. God, and I just thank you for uh, this time. God, we have come together and gathered as the body, and from that, God, I pray that you're glorified. God, we have sung songs of praises to you, and from that, I pray that you're glorified. We've opened your unerrant word, and we've studied it, and God, I pray from that that you're glorified. God, we've wrestled with our own hearts today, and from that, I pray, you're glorified. So God, we just come before you and we're like, David, as he cries out and we're like, God, just don't take your presence from us. God, keep working on us. Keep, keep, keep moving within us. God, point us in the direction you want us to act next. What battlefield is it that you want us to step onto? Because here's what I know is outside of these four walls there is a world that is radically in need of you. I just know that outside of these four walls there are people that are hurting and need and need the hope that only you can provide, that need the comfort that only you can provide, God. They need the salvation that only you have. So God use us as a church. Use us as individuals. Take and and, and stir a fire within us that we have no other desire than walking outside of these four walls and proclaiming the good news of the gospel knowing that you'll be glorified, God. Use us. We offer ourselves to you, God. We love you and praise you, God. Lift up for you. Amen.